Brussels sprouts might not be the most obvious pick for a Valentine's dinner, but we like to avoid the obvious. Today we're exploring the romantic side of these miniature cabbages by making them the star of a three-course dinner and getting some advice from the grog shop's Patrick Driscoll on what to drink with all three courses. From KVBI in Homer, Alaska, my name's Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. Brussels sprouts are, in fact, named after the capital of Belgium. They've been popular there since at least the 1500s and were given their linguistic association by the French, who called them choux de Bruxelles, or Brussels cabbages. In Belgium itself, they were known as spruites. English being English, we took a little from here and a little from there, and so we have Brussels sprouts. The Germans call them Rosenkohl, which translates as cabbage roses, and variants of this name are the main form in the rest of Central and Eastern Europe. Cabbage roses seems a solid name for the way Brussels sprouts grow, little buds, up a sturdy central stalk. It is, of course, the same species as all of the rest of the cabbages, Brassica oleracea. Some ordinary head cabbages will form the stalk with the mini heads if the main head is cut as soon as it starts to grow, and someone back in at least the 13th century noticed this and did the work to develop a cabbage variety that would only grow this way. Nowadays, at least in America, there is a lingering revulsion attached to the mention of Brussels sprouts, a feeling that you need to apologize for bringing them up, like you need to promise to the people at your table that, no, no, these Brussels sprouts are delicious. These Brussels sprouts are not like those. And even though I can't say for sure that I've ever actually encountered those Brussels sprouts, I know exactly what they mean. Gray, sulfurous, soggy balls of unseasoned leaves with all the freshness boiled away. Vegetable cookery in the Anglosphere has always been a bit dodgy, and the overcooked Brussels sprout, along with its partner in mush, overcooked asparagus, make it at least understandable why someone could develop a lifelong aversion to green on their plate. They weren't crazy in Belgium, though. They didn't have a taste for dishwater or want to eat things that smelt like yesterday's socks. They braised their sprouts for a short time in a little butter and wine or maybe some beer and then splashed in a bit of cream. Who wouldn't like that? Nowadays, you can roast them, too. You can deep fry them. You can slice them thinly on a mandolin and dress them in vinaigrette. You can make coleslaw out of them. You can pickle them whole for sauerkraut. They're easy to grow, especially in Alaska. They keep well in a cool place. You can even leave them on the stalk in the early part of the winter before it gets too cold, and they'll be perfectly happy. Eat more Brussels sprouts is all I'm saying. Cook them briefly, give them some kind of dressing, and never apologize for serving them.
So the official topic of the show is uh, Brussels sprouts. And we're going to get to Brussels sprouts. we got lots of things to do with them later. We're doing this in the context uh, of Valentine's Day, which is when this particular episode will be released. So I thought, let's make a Valentine's Day meal. A really, you know, a fairly simple one, but something that uh, is... You do have to put a little bit of love and a little bit of effort into it. And of course, it will involve chocolate. Well, let's go ahead and get to the chocolate-related bit right off the bat. So first, I am starting my stove and I've also got a pot of water on but I'm putting the stove at 450 degrees because I'm going to make a tart shell because we're going to make a chocolate tart and we will get to the the chocolate part of the chocolate tart a little while later but first we have to make a tart shell <laughs> I've made this tart shell I don't know how many times and it is a really terrific tart shell can't actually remember where I found it I think it might have come from David Leibovitz somehow but I, I honestly, I've been making this thing so long, I don't even remember. It's a, it's a pretty classical recipe. It's a French recipe originally, but it's very, it's basically what we, we would consider in America a pat in the pan dough. It uses melted butter as opposed to the more familiar method of making crusts that use cold butter that's cut in. And it's a different, it's, it's a lot more like a shortbread crust than like a flaky pie crust. And it's really delicious. The reason we set the oven to 450 degrees is because it starts out with brown butter. Those of you who have listened to more than one episode of this show will probably realize that, yes, I like brown butter quite a bit. I love the flavor. It's fantastic. And this pie dough has it in abundance. So the first thing that we do is we put 180 grams of butter in a stainless steel bowl, six tablespoons of water, two tablespoons of sugar, and... In another unusual twist, two tablespoons of oil. And all of those go into a bowl together. And the butter is just cold. You know, I just threw, the, threw in the butter. So that is going to go into the oven at 450 degrees for roughly 20 minutes. Or basically as long as it takes for the butter to brown. And I can hear my tea kettle is almost whistling, not quite. And the boiling water is for some dried shiitake mushrooms that I have. We're gonna get those soaking. And it's worth talking a little bit about what exactly we're doing. This is the day before the actual meal. Any of these big important meals that you wanna cook for somebody, but you also, you're gonna be the one cooking it, and you don't necessarily want to or have all day to spend in the kitchen, it's very important to know how to plan a meal like this. Because there are a lot of moving parts in what eventually is going to, you know, land on the plate in this deal. So this is gonna be a three course meal. The first course is gonna be essentially a salad but you can also consider it just a, a straight vegetable course. You can call it whatever you want. I don't, I don't really care. And it's going to be braised, the braised insides of Brussels sprouts with, with bacon and shallot and a warm mustard vinaigrette. So a pretty, pretty simple, straightforward braised Brussels sprouts. And this is the interior of the Brussels sprouts. I'm going to peel the, the outer layers off and I'm going to use those in the second dish. And the second dish, the main course, is going to be stuffed pork tenderloin It'll be stuffed with uh, mushrooms, garlic, and farmer's cheese, and it will have sautéed Brussels sprout leaves and risotto, and then we'll end everything with a chocolate tart. So this is a, it's a pretty simple, straightforward meal, 
that is nonetheless very impressive and very delicious when it's presented as a series of courses like this. But in order to not have our time before dinner, because you actually, for some, especially for something like Valentine's Day or, you know, any, any like date night where you're trying to impress a person, part of it, you don't want to be like all frazzled and strung out and have had a difficult time throwing together this stuff at the last minute with a lot of pressure and all this, you know, stress and angst. You want the actual cooking process to go as smoothly as possible because you still have to sit there and try to impress this person and, you know, come off like a decent human being instead of, you know, somebody who's freaking out because nothing came together quite the way they wanted to or they forgot something, you know, you forgot something, one of the ingredients or whatever, and you're stressed out. It's not the best way to come off. If you really want to be smooth and have a good and solid romantic evening, you got to look like you've pulled this thing off. And the way to do that is to do as much as possible the day before. So that's what we're doing right now is we're taking care of all of the detail work, the stuff that's really time consuming. Also the things that need to happen, because then if you forgot something is you still have 24 hours to fix it. You've got plenty of time. This is the way that you pull off course dinners is by doing as much as you can ahead of time. I've already got two of my steps knocked off. I got my mushrooms soaking and I've got my, my butter for my tart shell browning. And so the goals for today, I need to get my tart shell made. I need to get my pork ready to go and I need to get my Brussels sprouts prepped. Okay, so next I'm gonna take my pork tenderloins and I gotta trim them and get them salted. And I've got two whole pork tenderloins here, which is of course way too much for two people. And so what I'm gonna do is trim the ends off of each tenderloin, just to where I have two nice, solid, round, evenly shaped cylinders to work with. And the ends, I can do whatever I want with those, you know, I can just, I can pound those out and make little cutlets or schnitzels or whatever. I can cook them for breakfast. I can make little tacos out of them, whatever. It doesn't matter. So I'm just going to cut the ends off and get a nice single serving, a nice cylinder, roughly, I would say that's probably six to eight ounces. And these don't require much prep right now. In fact, all they actually need is some salt. There is great controversy in the world of meat cookery. There's actually not any controversy because everybody who's really good at cooking meat knows that you salt as far as possible in advance. In fact, overnight is ideal. And that has to do with the way that salt works. A lot of people worry about salting things too early because they worry that it's gonna dry out. And it's not gonna dry out. Your meat is not gonna dry out. The surface will dry out a little bit, but we actually want that because then it will get a much better sear when it goes in the pan. The way that salt works on meat is it denatures the proteins in the meat. It causes them to unravel and open up. And at the beginning of this process, and you'll notice this if you do salt meat and you let it sit there for a few minutes, you can see that it draws out quite a bit of water. The way that osmosis works, the liquid on the outside of the meat becomes saltier and so it draws out some of the water from inside the meat. After a few minutes, it will be noticeably moister on the outside of the meat. So a lot of people look at that and they can say, oh no, it's taking all the juices out of the meat. If you let it sit there for a while, because these proteins are denatured, are unraveled, the meat can then reabsorb all of that, that liquid, only this time, 
with the salt that you've added. So it's actually going to reabsorb the seasoning that you're giving it, and the salt then slowly penetrates further into the meat because the same process happens in the next layer. You know, the outside layer releases its moisture into the saltier uh, top layer and then reabsorbs with more salt into the next layer of cells down, and that keeps happening until the salt has basically become evenly distributed inside the meat. Now, it takes a while to penetrate all the way, but this is basically the exact process by which, say, a country ham is cured. The salt is gradually drawn into the interior by this action of the liquids on the inside constantly wanting to maintain equilibrium with the salt, you know, and the next layer out. So over time, the meat actually becomes more seasoned. So it's better in all cases to salt as early as possible. And you want to give it, if you can't, you know, if you bring something home and you can't let it sit for an hour with salt on it, it's usually better to just salt it right, right before you cook it because this process does take time. Until it really starts to work, then the outside of the meat will be a little moist and you will be losing some of the juices. But if you have enough time to let it sit and let it work, it's always gonna be better to salt and salt generously. My, my favorite description is always that the amount of salt that you use should look like freshly fallen snow on a lawn. You know, you don't wanna completely cover everything so it's totally white. You wanna be able to see the meat through the, through the salt, but it should be generous. Make sure you get the ends, beauty. So now I can set these aside on a plate and these will go into the refrigerator uncovered overnight. Three steps down. What's next on my list? Because I did sit down and I made a list. So coming up next, it says start risotto. And you might be saying to yourself, start risotto? What are you talking about? Because typically rice is cooked right when it's made. And you are, would be mostly correct, except for risotto. You can, of course, cook risotto right when it's made, but fortunately for restaurants around the world, risotto does very well if you par-cook it and finish it at service. This is why risotto is on so many restaurant menus, because it is really, really easy to knock out on the line. It's not necessarily because it is a uh, such a well-known dish, although it is partly that. I mean, people like risotto because it's delicious but <laughs> a big reason why it is in a, on so many mid-range restaurant menus as a prominent starch is because of this fact, that it is really actually very simple to make. So we are going to start it in the typical risotto fashion by heating up some butter and sauteing it. You can use oil, of course, if you want to, but this is kind of a buttery menu. There's, there's quite a bit of butter happening. So we'll just continue the butter theme with our risotto. This particular risotto, risotto always uses medium grain rice because we are, the goal here is for creamy and distinct grains of rice. Not fluffy, but creamy. The most common, of course, is arborio rice. And I am going to do it the traditional way, which does involve a fair amount of stirring. There are some more modern methods of making risotto that involve things like rinsing the rice and then keeping the water to add back at the end and cook it in a clearer water. You don't have to stir it as much, basically. You can do the examination if you would like on how to make the modern 
types of risotto and uh, Serious Eats did the most famous version that I'm aware of. But for today, we're just gonna do it the old fashioned way. So I just added probably a cup and a half of risotto, I'm imagining. We're just gonna saute it until the grains get kind of slightly translucent. Very similar to making jambalaya. Starting to get some aroma out of my brown butter. Let me take a look at it. Oh, we're starting to brown, but I'm gonna let it go just a little bit longer. Get it just a little bit browner. My rice is giving off a slightly nutty aroma and getting translucent. So I have some chicken stock and I'm just gonna be slowly adding it at the beginning to my risotto, letting the risotto absorb it and adding a little bit more. You don't wanna add it all at once, just a little bit at a time. Now the goal here again is we're not trying to cook it all the way, we are trying to par cook it. So at the end of this, I want it to be mostly done. I want it to be slightly crunchy in the middle. I don't want to add all my liquid because the way that we'll finish this tomorrow, we'll throw it in a pan while it's cold, we'll break it apart, and then we'll add the last of the liquid, which will finish cooking it and we'll generate the appropriate sauce. So I'm just gonna keep adding a little bit of water, letting it kind of absorb the water and just want to keep the water kind of just over the grains, just where I can just barely see the grains poking through. And I'm just going to keep adding liquid as we go along. And I'm going to go ahead and set a timer because I want to make sure that even if I get distracted, I don't forget to check this thing. 10 minutes. Remember to season it at this point as well. And let's take a look at my butter. Oh yeah, beautiful light brown. I'm gonna get another bowl for the next step so that I am not fighting a hot stainless steel bowl. I need 300 grams of ideally pastry flour, but unfortunately it's really hard to find pastry flour right now. All purpose flour works. Go ahead and give my risotto a quick stir. It's already started to swell up quite a bit and absorb a lot of the water. I'm gonna add a little bit more chicken stock. Now I'm gonna make a well in the middle of my flour and dump all this right on in there. And I'm just gonna mix it until it all comes together. The flour has absorbed all of the liquid and we've got kind of a smooth dough. Till the mixture forms a loose ball is what my my recipe says and I'm gonna let that just cool down a little bit it's still a little warm to handle so we're gonna talk about wine today as I understand it we are gonna talk about wine so here's what I want to do I'm gonna I'll tell you the menu here in a second yeah sure I want two uh, two different recommendations okay one is money is no object I don't care and it's a generic, not a personal recommendation. Gotcha. The other is specific to me, and particularly my wife, and you know the kinds of things I that do. she likes and does not like, <laughs> and uh, also $20 a bottle. And sure. let's go um, for three courses, um, you know, so main, or a, a starter, a main, and then a dessert, and we'll have a dessert wine too. Yeah. And so let me know uh, what we're gonna do. So this is obviously Valentine's Day. The first course is 
braised hearts of Brussels sprouts, so the interior sure. parts of the head, the pale parts, uh, braised with bacon, shallots, and a warm mustard vinaigrette. So, okay. Okay, then the second course is uh, pork tenderloins, um, roasted, stuffed with uh, uh, shiitake mushrooms, garlic, and farmer's cheese okay. over risotto with the sauteed leaves, the outer leaves of the Brussels sprouts. Sure. And then dessert is a very basic, very simple chocolate tart. Well, that's gonna make it really hard on the end. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking about that first course, what comes to mind is that there's two aspects to Brussels sprouts that make them particularly difficult with wines. One is the bitterness element, and I actually think that comes from those cores more, whereas in the leaves you get more of that sulfurous, and sulfur in wine can be kind of antithetical, but there are certainly ways around that. But I, I think since you're using those hearts of the Brussels sprouts, we don't have to worry so much about that. But when you're thinking about bitter, one of my favorites of late is to go into that kind of orange wine, funky wine where white wines that are fermented on their skin so they get some of that tannic acid and just develop a lot more character. Uh, we have one actually that's not here yet, but that's coming in from Australia that's a Fiano orange wine that was absolutely fantastic, uh, just hasn't hit the country yet. <laughs> one from South America that's called Hamon Hamon. And when you're talking about obviously using pork products in with this, it's a wine kind of specifically geared towards salty pork. Mm -hmm. But I think that yellow, extra viscous and slightly tannic quality really combats that. Uh, the other way to go, if you wanted to go against it, a different way would be to go sweet. So something like a Spätlaser level Riesling, a Vouvray, especially okay. one that was demi-sec, I think would work really, really well in all of those situations. So if we're looking at no budget, um, I think I would go with that Australian orange wine. Huh, okay. Um, which, while not inexpensive, I think is still going to come in at 25 or $30. So yeah. it, it's not, you're not breaking the bank. Right. Uh, but if we're looking at a Jeff Lockwood wine, <laughs> I think I'm actually at Vouvray. Yeah. And for Vouvray, what I'm thinking would be the Champelou, which is uh, imported by this fantastic importer, uh, Kermit Lynch, out of, uh, out of Berkeley, California, who, one, if you see his name on any label, trusts that the wine is good. <laughs> um, and that comes in just under $20, and it's fantastic, and I know both you and Kelly would love it. Okay. Second course. Pork tenderloin, yep. uh, shiitake mushrooms, garlic, farmer's cheese, uh, the leaves of the Brussels sprouts, and risotto. And now here's where we're coming into looking at that sulfurous character. Yes. And there's a couple of different ways, again, that you could go here. My first instinct is to go with something really bright and fresh, but that can take on sulfur. Um, and that, I know I'm going back to Riesling again, but I wouldn't go into that Spätlaser, that sweet level, but I would go with something dry, either from Washington State, you know, somewhere like Orange in Australia, or Austria, where they're bone dry, and they don't get the sulfurous characteristics that you get out of their German counterparts. But the fact that their German counterparts carry that so well kind of gives you the hint that these wines without them also will, and they really do. And so that, if we're going without budget, um, I think, we have this absolutely ridiculous Riesling uh, from Schloss Goebelsberg, um, 
uh, Heiligenstein, just a fantastic producer that still for under $50 overperforms incredibly. And pork and cheese and Brussels, I mean, those are the foods of that area of the world. So it just makes sense that the wines would go. Right. The other route, I think, is to go really aromatic and soft, which kind of lets it absorb a lot of those flavors rather than cleaning them up. It just meshes. Um, and that makes me think of Italy. And the wine that I had in mind was uh, Verdaccia, kind of a lesser known white grape, certainly more full bodied than Pinot Grigio or uh, Verdicchio or those sorts of things that you might be used to. But it still has some of the, just a hint of those green vegetal aspects mm-hmm. uh, that I think highlight the Brussels sprouts, but enough roundness to also kind of embrace them without taking over. Okay. Um, and the one that we have on the shelf right now, I think, is 15 bucks. Sweet. And it's delicious. In fact, you and Kelly have had it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, hopefully she liked it. She did. Oh, good. <laughs> no, no, I know she did. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, and then we're talking chocolate. Yeah. Uh, you probably know where we're walking. <laughs> the, the port section? Actually, not quite yet. Oh. So this being Valentine's Day, certainly there are ports and dessert wines that are really obvious options, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But why not finish with bubbles? You know, I think at the end of the night when I drink a big heavy port, which I absolutely love, especially with something chocolate and at the end of a kind of decadent meal, I just want to go to bed. (laughs) Whereas finishing with something lighter that still goes really well with the dessert but it kind of lifts you up, makes you want to continue the evening. And I think, especially on Valentine's Day, that's not a bad plan. So I would think about something like a Brachetto d'Aquis, which is a slightly sweet, slightly sparkling red wine from the Piedmont. Uh, Rosa Regale from Castello Banfi is a really good example, though there's plenty of them out there. They're low in alcohol. They don't weigh you down. And I, like I said, at the end of the meal, to me, they kind of bring you up in a really nice way. And chocolate, I think a lot of people don't think about it, but actually matches really well with just straight bubbles. Now, I wouldn't go brute champagne, but... Yeah, that's what I mean. If you're when thinking, you said bubbles, I was, I was a little like, well, you know, because especially, you know, the champagnes that are easy for us to get here typically are very dry and typically really high in acid. And I wouldn't necessarily think chocolate but it's it, hard. But if you think of something like Schramsberg, Cremant, so it's a demi-sec, so it okay. has somewhere between 12 and 20 grams per liter of residual sugar. It's nicely sweet, not again, not overly alcoholic, as most sparkling wines aren't, but still provides that lift, and the natural acidity from the carbon dioxide and the lower alcohol, so you have more of that general grape acidity in the wine, despite the sugar, let it finish really really clean and huh. I absolutely love that and it it's a fun different way to go yeah and then if we're looking at dessert wines obviously going ruby port yeah I feel like or I, that it's so obvious it, I kind of feel like it's too easy <laughs> <laughs> um, even though it totally works oh no it no question <laughs> that it works <laughs> so if I'm going with my just general overall pick I would actually say we have really fantastic ice wine from Inniskillen, but not the typical ice wine that you would think of, but because it's made from Cabernet Franc. So it's a red grape 
spice huh. wine. Okay. And that is pressed and left on the leaves long enough to extract some of that color. So it almost has a rosé color, but it does have some of that tannic structure, mm. just slightly, <laughs> um, underneath all of the obvious natural sweetness. Again, if we were going to the, the Lockwood pick, <laughs> um, actually, I would go back to that Rosa Regale. Um, and one of the things that I really like about it, especially if it's just two people having dinner, as it often is these days, <laughs> um, it has both the full bottle and the half bottle option. Oh, okay. And so while the full bottle goes slightly over budget, I mean, by like a buck or two, yeah. <laughs> the half bottle is like 13 or 14 bucks. Oh, wow. And that, it's a really, really pleasant way to end the evening. Nice. I would never have thought any kind of bubbles to go with chocolate tart. It really works. Huh. All right. That's a, give it a shot. Got my two-piece tart pan. This is, uh, this is a nine-inch. Actually, maybe this is an eight-inch. Let's add some more chicken stock to my risotto. Risotto always takes more water than uh, cooking like long grain rice, mainly because a lot of it evaporates in the cooking process because you're doing it in an open pot as opposed to a closed pot. So now I have my tart pan all ready to go to accept my dough. I'm just leaving my oven on at 450 because that's what we're gonna blind bake our shell at. With this particular pie dough, I have never found any need to, to use pie weights as long as you dock the crust because it's not really a flaky crust. It's more, like I say, it's more like a shortbread crust. Uh, so it doesn't have the tendency to sort of puff up too much. It usually will a little bit, but it'll it'll fall back okay. Let's see where we're at with timing on this risotto. If I taste these, there's still gonna be a lot of crunch to them. Yeah, quite a bit of crunch. I just wanna dial back that crunch just a little bit more. Probably another five minutes. This dough does feel a little bit greasy, you know, just because there's quite a lot of really warm butter in here. Um, so just expect that. And I'm just grabbing a big chunk and dropping it into my pie tin and patting it out, you know, fairly thin, but it's very forgiving. And if you accidentally put a hole in the bottom, grab a chunk of the dough and fix it. Then start building up the sides. You know, I don't, I like a, a relatively, a little thicker tart shell, especially for one like this, that's, you know, again, more like a shortbread, and that's meant to to support a filling that's gonna be perfectly smooth, um, like this, this chocolate filling is gonna be. So it's nice if the crust has a little bit of uh, substance to it. Pinch everything around so it's even, and then just gonna roll along the top, cut off the edges so it stays a little neater. Use the edges of the tart shell, or the tart pan, as a knife. And another quick little pat. Pat of everything just to make it all even. And nice, and I will grab a fork. You can use a docker if you have one. And we will generously dock, and this will, again, provide a little bit of a path for steam to escape so that we don't get too much explosion. Let's go into the oven. 
for about 15 to 20 minutes or until nicely browned. Now let's go back to our risotto. Oh, look at that. Good timing, Jeff. Good timing. This is about 17 minutes, so I'm betting we're gonna be just about pretty close to being par-cooked. Let's grab a couple of grains here. Mm, yeah. So it's not crunchy anymore. You know, there's not like a hard bit on the inside, but it's very definitely firm and al dente. So, that is what we want. And so the next thing we're gonna do is I'm going to lay out a baking sheet and spread out a little parchment. And in order to cool this down as quickly as possible, I'm gonna spread the rice out on a layer on this parchment paper. And that'll cool it out. It'll keep it from clumping together so bad. It'll help it dry out a little better and be a little easier to deal with. If you just let it cool in one mass, you know, you'll just kind of get a big, mush, a big solid block of rice, which is a little hard to deal with uh, the next day. So we'll spread this out. It'll also cool a lot quicker this way. And I can see, you know, looking at it, there's just, a, there's a lot of individual, they're all individual grains of rice sort of bound together with a little bit of a creamy sauce. So tomorrow this will be really easy because I just have to take out enough for a couple servings, throw it in a pan with a little bit of liquid and we will have magically perfect risotto in the space of about five minutes instead of having to stand over the pot stirring, you know? So make life easy on yourself. Do as much of this stuff as you can beforehand. So, start risotto, that's checked off my list. Make tart shell is almost checked off my list. The tart shell is in the oven. So what do we have next? Saute mushrooms and garlic to make the stuffing. Oh, well, okay, we can do that. So we haven't really talked about the stuffing yet. Way back at the beginning of this whole process, I started soaking some shiitake mushrooms. That was so long ago that we started this that they are totally all steamed and soaked and ready to be used. So let's use them. We're going to saute these mushrooms with some garlic and then we're gonna mix all that with some farmer's cheese and we're gonna stuff our pork with that. So we're, gonna, we're actually gonna stuff the pork tomorrow. There's no reason to stuff it tonight. But we're gonna make the stuffing right now. So we're just mincing some garlic real quick. Take my shiitakes out. And the thing about dried shiitakes is the stems never really soften that well. You wanna cut the stems out. So I do that first. I just slice the stems off as close to the base as possible. And since these are going to be used for stuffing, I'm going to mince them pretty fine too. So we don't have a bunch of chunks to deal with trying to stuff. I'm satisfied with that. It's not three Michelin star fine, but it's fine enough. Drop some butter in the pan. Check on my pie crust, which is quite lovely. It's risen a little bit off the pan, but again, this one will sink back down once it starts to cool. Uh, I have tried to blind bake using pie weights with this particular dough, 
And I think because it's warm when it goes in the pan, it never works really that well. It always winds up a little weird and oftentimes it'll actually stick to the parchment paper. So I've never really had a lot of luck <laughs> blind baking this particular uh, dough with the weights. You will look at it and it will puff up a little bit, but it's okay. It will, it'll go back down as it cools down. Most of the water's out of the butter. Start cooking my mushrooms. Add a little salt. Now I do have this beautiful mushroom water left over and what I'm gonna do with that is I'm gonna save it and I'm gonna use that in my risotto. These are gonna both be in the same, uh, in the same dish with each other in the main course. The little hint of mushroom that will sit in the risotto will blend with the mushrooms in the pork tenderloin stuffing and it should be quite delicious. Starting to get a little bit of color on these shiitakes now. Go ahead and add my garlic in here. Sweat just a little bit. Just enough to mellow it out. Grab a small bowl. Grab my farmer's cheese. And you can use goat cheese. You can even use cream cheese. You can use any, any soft cheese. Farmer's cheese is nice because it's, it's got a real tangy acidity to it that uh, it works really well. And we don't need any salt in here, but I am gonna add a little bit of rosemary. And I'm gonna add a little bit of thyme. Mash that all up. Make sure that's the right amount of, gar of farmer's cheese for this amount of stuff. Look at that, quite lovely, lovely. Oh yeah, perfect, perfect. So that, my stuffing is now done and that can sit and wait. Let's take a look and see how we're doing on the, on the tart dough. Oh yeah, oh she's beauty, 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 beauty. You always gotta be a little bit careful with a two piece tart pan. It's really easy to accidentally grab the bottom, shove it up and then have major destruction happen. Again, slightly puffy, but even my recipe says at the bottom of it, this tart shell may puff up a little bit. This is normal and it will sink as it cools. So all we have now is prep Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts, the star of the show. So let's get to prepping those guys. Let me clean up my little area here real quick. The really nice thing about doing the heavy prep the day beforehand is that it also leaves the kitchen in a much cleaner shape uh, when you're actually doing the final cooking, which especially on something like Valentine's Day is really nice because then you don't have to spend a bunch of time. You don't have a big pile of dirty dishes at the end of the meal, which is really not very romantic, unless you're a cook. We cooks know that there's nothing sexier than piles of dishes because it means that Really good food has been made. I'm gonna grab my Brussels sprouts and I'm gonna prep them. So a lot of people hate Brussels sprouts. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with disliking a particular food. I have many foods that I dislike and chief among them is olives. Brussels sprouts generate a certain amount of disdain from a lot of people. And I think a lot of it, uh, I think is because everybody's had them when they're way overcooked in a ton of water and they're kind of sulfurous and stinky and and yeah that's not really very appealing but you know in thinking about that and thinking about brussels sprouts in particular i found something curious brussels sprouts unlike other of the 
cabbage and cabbage adjacent, particularly head kinds of cabbages, they have a lot of outer leaves to inner leaves ratio. And so I was kind of started experimenting with that a little bit. And it turns out that a lot of the characteristic kind of bitter, slightly sulfuric flavors in Brussels sprouts is really in the outer leaves, in the darker green leaves. Once you get to the inside leaves that are pale, it really becomes much sweeter. And so for those of us who really love Brussels sprouts, it's actually, it's that contrast between the bitterness and the sweetness that really is like the star of the show. And it's why they're, it's why I love them so much is because they have that sort of complex flavor. But for people who aren't necessarily into bitter things or for people who don't like that kind of sulfuric pungency that uh, Brussels sprouts leaves can have, you know, the same sort of thing as like mustard greens, which are also related to cabbages. Um, it's that, it's that same sort of really deep and pungent flavor. But if you get rid of the outer leaves, then you're left with the pale interior. And then you can use the outer leaves almost as an herb. And I have in fact, like, avowed Brussels sprouts haters, who not only say, who are generally, you know, solid eaters, but they just hate Brussels sprouts, right? And also say, I've had many people try to make these, make, make me like Brussels sprouts, and I've always hated them. I have had these people, and I have done this technique of only using, of, of using the inner, the inner heads, the pale leaves, for one dish, and using the darker green on the outside another way, and they have said, these are the first Brussels sprouts that I have ever liked. So I maintain that this technique has some credibility in the real world and that this technique will, in fact, serve to convert even confirmed Brussels sprout haters. And all I'm doing right now is to chop off the stem end and then bisect the head. So now I have a container of bisected heads, a container of leaves, and another container that will accept the paler interior heads. So I'm just going through and peeling the outside of every Brussels sprout real quick, just until we get through and we, we, get, we go from a dark green to a pale green. And the nice thing is too, because they'll both be part of the same meal, is that they'll help the meal itself to feel a little bit more unified. When you're, when you're doing multi-course meal planning, it's always a good idea to have elements in common between the different courses. You know, if you have orange juice, say, as part of a vinaigrette uh, in, an, in, in the main, you know, you might want to have some sort of uh, orange peel in the dessert. And it's not that, it's not that people necessarily notice it on a, on a conscious level. It just feels right. I've seen some pretty hideous multi-course menus out there that are overcomplicated or, or have too many different moving parts or whatever. But one of the things that they almost always have in common is that there's, it's hard to see what the connection between the different courses is. You know, a, a multi-course meal is not about showing off how many different things you can do in the kitchen. A multi-course meal is about a logical following from the first course to the end of the meal. Everything has to feel like it belongs together. And one of the ways that we can do that is by taking a single ingredient and spreading it out over multiple courses. Let's 
make our chocolate tart filling. And we are going to be making my favorite version of the chocolate filling, which is made with ganache. Um, there are more custardy fillings that you could also use that will give you a softer, more obviously custard-like texture because they are custards and use eggs. But I am a simple man when it comes to my chocolate tart filling and I just like to use ganache. And in this case, it's ganache that's enriched with a little bit of butter. So obviously a classic uh, ganache is just chocolate and cream in varying ratios, depending on what exactly you're looking to do. Uh, but typically for a tart filling, most recipes will call for the addition of a little bit of butter. And that is simply to make the filling a little bit firmer and a little more uh, sliceable and much less likely to spread out on the plate. So to make like a chocolate sauce, you would have maybe two times as much cream to maybe two parts of cream to one part chocolate and to make like a frosting kind of a fairly basic ganache is usually like a one-to-one. -one. And then for something that's firmer, uh, you can decrease the cream a little further. If you decrease the cream too much, you wind up running the risk of having a ganache that's still hard, which we don't want for a tart. So in this case, I have 400 grams of chocolate. This is probably going to be too much to make, or for this uh, this particular tart, this is going to be overkill. Boy, it's going to be really terrible to be left with some leftover chocolate ganache. What am I ever going to do with that? Besides all sorts of things, including eating it straight out of the bowl. <laughs> I've got 400 grams of chocolate. Uh, this is 72% uh, and I have 150 grams of cream and I have 80 grams of butter. And again, just remember, all butter is, is cream with most of the water out of it. The traditional way of making ganache is to heat the cream and add it to the chocolate and then stir in the hot cream to melt the chocolate very slowly. You know, the, the process of melting chocolate is you want it to happen in a very controlled manner. So I start with a little bit of the, just small circles at the beginning until it begins to form a very smooth and glossy ganache and then gradually widen it out. My chocolate is chopped fairly fine. You know, I don't want huge chunks that we're going to have to melt. When I'm starting the cream, when I'm starting to warm the cream, I always put my bowl of chocolate on top of the cream just to warm it up and start the melting process a little bit. So we're already almost there. Now, the easiest way to do this is to straight up melt your chocolate in the microwave, heat up your cream, and uh, go to town. Dump the cream in, and that is by far the simplest way of doing it. There's a slight risk that you're that you break it by having everything too hot, but usually if you just barely melt the chocolate, it's almost never an actual issue. The, the two great purposes of the microwave are for melting butter and clarifying butter especially, and, uh, and melting chocolate. Like it's just, it's the, it's, the, it's the best kitchen tool for either of those. I think I've got a few chunks left in here. And one thing that you can, that I will frequently do, um, particularly in one like this, you know, where it does have, it is a high chocolate to cream ratio. It's not one to one. So it, the temperature is gonna drop fairly quickly is I'll just splash a little bit more water into the pan I cooked the cream in. And we'll just get that cooking a little bit just to give it a, kind of a gentle heat, just to keep the temperature up while the last chunks of chocolate melt. And we're just gonna make sure that we've got all of the chunks melted. Um, again, use good chocolate for this. 
the chocolate is the star of the show and never <laughs> never try to make ganache with chocolate chips um, chocolate chips are specially formulated so they do not melt so you will not be able to successfully make ganache with them and it looks like we're getting pretty smooth looks like I see a few little chunks left in there it's still warm it looks like looks like my chunks are pretty well out so now I'm gonna drop my butter in because I want the, I want to drop the butter in at the end so that again it melts appropriately and it doesn't break and it doesn't become greasy broken ganache is really it's really easy to fix you just you just honestly you just stir a little more cream into it um, and you're generally gonna be pretty good to go I'm gonna go ahead and throw this on top of my still warm double boiler as I stir this butter in and the butter really makes this filling you know, in addition to the textural advantages and the flavor advantages of having a little butter, it also makes the filling really shine. Ganache is an emulsion, and as always with emulsions, the most important thing is keeping the heat under control. Never let it get too hot. Okay, my tart filling is done. Here's my shell, lovely and brown. Mostly sunk back. There's a slight very slight puffiness right in the middle it's not gonna matter sift through here make sure I got all the butter melted there's a couple little chips left looks like my ganache is smooth my butter is melted and now in order to make this tart this is all it takes wipe the bottom of the pan so there's no residual water and I just pour it in there pour it in spread it around and and the chocolate tart is finished. Okay, the last minute prep has been done. And now we're going to see just how quick this really is. So that was the shallots from my uh, braised Brussels sprouts hitting the pan. I'm going to get them going first because they're going to take about 15 minutes or so. I've got my oven at 450 because the next thing we're going to do is sear my pork tenderloins and get them in the oven. Once the tenderloins in the oven, the only thing left to cook is to saute the risotto or is to finish the risotto and saute my Brussels sprout leaves for the pork dish. So I'm just giving these shallots a quick saute in bacon fat. I just cooked a couple slices of bacon. That generated the fat for the Brussels sprouts. And now I'm just putting them out, dumping my Brussels sprouts into the pan just to get a little bit of color on them. And these are, again, these are just the cores. So we're not going to get those sulfurous flavors that Brussels sprouts are very well known for. I'm going to add a little salt here. And they're just getting a little bit of color. I don't want these to be super darkly browned. I'm not after that sort of dark caramelized Brussels sprout flavor, the roastiness. And we're just going to braise these in a little bit of the wine that's going to go with them. And slide them onto the back burner. And these guys can just gently braise for about 15 minutes. So the first course is just about now done. All that has to happen at the end is it just needs to be dressed. Okay, second course is the pork tenderloin. So the pork tenderloin has been stuffed. I stuffed it kind of last minute. 
Uh, if you have toothpicks or skewers or some kitchen twine to tie up your, uh, your incisions, that works pretty well. Honestly, I find that a lot of times, as long as you don't make too large of an incision, stuff tend to, tends not to leak out too much. I just make a small, as small an incision as I can with the knife and then open up as big a cavity as I can, drop it in there, stuff the stuffing full as much as it'll go. So I just dropped a little pork fat in the pan that I have kicking around from a lovely local pig. We're just gonna sear the uh, tenderloins, stick them in the oven to finish at 450. Tenderloins do not take very long to cook at all. They're not very large. So, so this will be a quick process too. You will have all the time in the world to hang out with your beloved before, during, and after the meal because so much of the work has already been done. So little actually needs to happen. I'm gonna prep my the stuff for my dressing here that I'm gonna stir into my Brussels sprouts. We've got bacon, some mustard, and the juice of a lemon. And that will go together with the bacon fat that is already in our Brussels sprouts. And I will probably throw in a little chunk of butter right at the end too, because because it's delicious. Just stir that bacon, the mustard, and the lemon juice together. Yum. Just about got some the nice browning that I'm looking for on my tenderloin. I'm gonna go ahead and pop these guys in the oven. Searing on the stovetop, finishing in the oven. Always an excellent method. Now let's get my risotto happening. And for that, also gonna want my, my mushroom juice from my shiitakes. And we're gonna get a nice, generous shot of butter into a pan. This initial bit of butter will help to loosen everything up, warm it all. It's a solid block when it comes out because the starch is kind of stuck together, but the uh, risotto is still definitely individual grains and they're not mushy, so they're not broken up. They're very distinct, perfect looking grains of risotto. And as they warm up, the sauce will, you know, the starch will start to release. Splash them around here in the pan for a second, and then we'll dump in the water, or the, uh, the mushroom liquid. And then if I need anything else, if I need any more liquid, I will add chicken stock. You can also use wine, or just straight water. And now we're gonna add the mushroom liquid. And yeah, this risotto is just, I mean, it's perfect. It's individual grains, separate and the liquid will start to thicken up and it'll just take probably another five minutes from here on out to actually cook and get to where we want it. Don't forget, you do want to have, you want your risotto to be just a little saucy. You don't want it to be too dry. You want it to have its own sauce, which is part of the reason, you know, I could, I could have made a separate sauce to go with this tenderloin and this, uh, and this risotto, but the risotto itself is already gonna be fairly saucy, plus the tenderloin contains, is gonna contain melted cheese, which also will have something of a saucy texture. So I essentially said, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sauce this. All right, and my risotto is now really starting to look nice. It's got a beautiful creamy sauce, distinct grains, just about ready to taste the grain. Mmm! So the risotto is now perfect for a little more salt and some generous black pepper. I could add some 
I have some Pecorino Romano that it would be good in here, but since there's already farmer's cheese in the in the pork, and since I'm gonna be adding some shaved dry Irish cheddar to the top of the Brussels sprouts, I think we've got all the cheese we really need. That's an executive decision that I've just made, and that's just how it's gonna be. All right, um, I'm gonna add a little bit more chicken so stock to my risotto just to loosen it up just a little. It doesn't need to cook much anymore. The grains are, are now, you know, there's still a little bite to them. They're still a little bit chewy, but they're, they're distinctly not crunchy or hard. They offer just a little bit of resistance, just enough to kind of make it an interesting bite. Okay, so the risotto is now finished. Let's check on our Brussels sprouts, which are, oh, oh man, they smell good. They really smell really good. The big thing with them is you just want them to be cooked all the way through. You want them to be nice and soft. Mmm. Mmm. Oh yeah. The Brussels sprouts are done. So I'm going to stir in the lemon juice and a little bit more butter with the mustard and the bacon and the butter. Run that all around. Oh, it smells gorgeous. And at this point, I am ready to plate. And this Brussels sprout dish is just gonna get a really simple plating, just on a plate, <laughs> topped with some shaved cheddar and a little fleur de sel. The only last cooking that I actually need to do is so simple, I don't even have to do it on the air. It is literally getting a pan hot, throwing some fat into it, and sauteing a shower of the Brussels sprout leaves until they are uh, just slightly crispy. And they will get showered over the top of the pork tenderloin, sitting on top of a bed of risotto. Start to finish, I mean, that's 20 minutes right there. And I'm right about ready to serve the first course. Um, and by the time the first course is done, these tenderloins will just be finishing. So the timing on that will be perfect. And uh, three course dinner. Simple as can be, the secret is in the prep. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM 890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced by Jeff Lockwood. Today's guest was Patrick Driscoll from The Grog Shop. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Kotawar Ebane. This is the first episode of the winter 2021 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you.